Welcome to No Bucks Given, the equestrian podcast where we have honest conversations about the horse industry. Where whether it is debunking common horse myths and examining the science behind them or getting to the bottom of a complicated social topic, we get to what matters most, how to best advocate and care for our equine friends. Today on the podcast, I have a very special guest with me. She's a dear, dear friend of mine, Tori Kager, who has not only taken multiple off-the-track thoroughbreds up the levels of either eventing, dressage, or both, but she is one of the best horsewomen I know. She's truly in a class of her own in terms of how hardworking and smart she is. I wanted to share her knowledge and expertise specifically when it comes to off-track thoroughbreds today. So Tori, thank you so much for taking the time of your very busy schedule. Thank you for having me. That was very sweet of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) So, Tori, you have, from my understanding, three important thoroughbreds in your life. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about them and how you got started with them and what you ended up doing with them? Sure. I I started my eventing career on a quarter horse cross pony. And so she did not seem to have scope to go above training level. And we started looking for my first off-track thoroughbred project while I was in high school. Um, I ended up with Avi, my first off-track thoroughbred, and he was four turning five when I got him, and I ended up bringing him up through doing both of our first preliminaries together um, when I was a senior in high school. So you took a quarter horse pony cross up to training level. I did, You did that. I did do that, yes. You did that, and then you took an off-track thoroughbred up to preliminary level. And Avi is not the most naturally talented horse I know. So it's incredibly impressive that you got him up there. That I feel was like very, that's a, a backhand accomplishment. That was very gently put. Uh, Avi, Avi does have several physical and actually mental limitations. So we didn't know at the time that I adopted him, but he actually was a dummy foal. And so he has several neurologic deficits that we were became aware of as I was bringing him along, but he seemed to kind of try hard enough to overcome those limitations. And so it was only through his work ethic that he was able to make it up the levels because he really just barely had the scope to jump a preliminary fence, but he had to be, you know, so on it in terms of responding to my aids for him to be able to jump around a preliminary course. So I'm so curious. So I'm curious, what drew you initially to thoroughbreds and wanting to adopt them? I think that I got used to being on the underdog uh, when I was on Maggie, the pony. And so I knew that I never really wanted, I wasn't drawn to the idea of going out and getting a finished horse. I wanted to put the time in and really feel like any success that I had was the result of a lot of hard work. Um, And I also, having a horse already and not wanting to sell her, I didn't have any kind of substantial budget when I was going out looking for him. And so it really was green horses and likely thoroughbreds were all I was going to be able to look at at that time. Very cool. So after Avi, um, you, so basically you had mock, you had maxed out Avi at prelim, right? And then you made the decision to get another horse to, with the goal of continuing up the levels of eventing. That is more or less accurate. What really happened is he got a bone bruise in his shoulder. Um, oh, that's specific. Yeah, so he <laughs> must have been kicked in the field. Um, oh, okay. I yeah, see. so he just 
he wasn't even like noticeably lame, but something started feeling not quite right. He was cantering worse and wasn't jumping as well as he had been. So we actually ended up sending him to New Bolton for a bone scan because our vet couldn't figure it out in the field. Um, and so he ended up going on a long stall rest. We'd already been talking at, at that point about how this was kind of the end of the road for his upper level career. And we needed to be starting to look for something if I wanted to make it up to the FEI levels and you know up past prelim. So while he was on stall rest was when I found my next horse, Callie, who actually did not race. She does have a jockey club number, but it is likely that what happened is she had a lot of behavioral issues at the track <laughs> um, and she has an old pelvic fracture. So the thought, the you know, speculation says that perhaps what happened is she flipped over and fractured her pelvis when she was training to race. So she never did make it to the racetrack. But I purchased her as a seven-year-old going prelim. She had just done her first prelim when I got her. Oh, very cool. And did you know about the pelvic break? When you bought her? No, we did not. And that did not come up in her pre-purchase exam. But we found out as we were doing more and more, um, I'm sure we'll get into, as we were doing more and more examination of her, we figured out that there was something definitely not quite right about her pelvis. That's super interesting. So you took her up how far? We did up through, now it's the three-star level. Um, we finished a three-star short, and we finished the cross-country of a three-star long, but I fell off in show jumping. <laughs> so effectively, you did a three-star long. We did two out of three phases of a three-star long. <laughs> you did the hardest one. <laughs> Not according to Callie that day. <laughs> That's fair. So after you did that two-star long, and my understanding is she had some physical issues, which we'll kind of examine later, um, you is that when you got Sage or you had Sage or you got Sage earlier? Yeah, I got Sage earlier. So once I had found Avi kind of a long-term lease situation, I was anxious to have something else that was going um, and bringing something else up the levels again. I really, I enjoyed competing at the highest levels. It was, you know, like very exciting and very rewarding to have a good result, but I actually really like working with green horses. And at, when I was teaching, I loved working with green riders too. So I went looking again and I adopted Sage from after the races at the end of 2014. So at that point I had not done a three-star long, but I was competing at Intermediate with Callie when I adopted Sage. Okay, what made you want to adopt her? You just wanted a second horse. Yeah, I wanted to have something that might be more consistent in terms of behavior and okay. also in had more potential uh, to score well on the flat. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So you started your journey with Sage. And for those of you who don't know, Sage is a little bit Instagram famous <laughs> um, because she's so cool. She's just this really special, she's one of those really special thoroughbreds. So will you tell me a little bit about your journey with her? Absolutely. She was three turning four when I got her. And obviously, as I said, the goal was to make her into an event horse and to see how far we could go that way. She was exceptional as a four and five year old. Um, it was like such a delight to bring her along. Um, 
And, you know, right away I could, it was very easy for her to score well on the flat and put in a good dressage test, but she also was super careful in jumping. And that worked out okay at the lower levels because there was no chance this horse was ever going to have a rail. Um, but she did start to scare herself as the jumps got higher. So she competed in her four and five-year-old years. Um, she competed at novice and training level and, you know, did all of the things. She qualified for the four-year-old event horse championships and competed in those. She qualified for the training level e AECs. Um, as a five-year-old. That's really impressive. She did, yeah. Yeah, as a five-year-old. Wow. Um, and she was just, I mean... It, I've ridden a good number of young horses because I also spent a fair amount of my time as a young adult um, working for people. So I was working for riders. So I had been on a lot of horses and she was just like, she just came out every day ready to work and like really wanted to do a good job. And that ended up being not, it ended up having like a bad side to it, which was that she would scare herself so badly when she over jumped and she was so fearful of touching a rail that it ended up kind of being her demise in jumping. I see. Okay. So then you had an interesting turn to your story with Sage. So she didn't, she wasn't able to jump anymore. And then, so did she, did you decide to switch over to dressage? Cause she had an injury, which we can touch on, but did you decide to touch on, did you decide to switch after, after the injury or after she kind of started to scare herself jumping? Yes, yes, to both of those. <laughs> so in her five-year-old year, after she qualified for the AEC, she couldn't go because she broke her hock. Like a couple of the bones in her hock, she got kicked in the field. And then she rehabbed from that and was allowed to jump again. And then at the beginning of her six-year-old year, we were trying to move her up to prelim. We were really struggling with her confidence jumping. And then she got kicked in the field again, same oh, wow. leg. Um, shattered her lateral splint bone in one of her hind legs. Oh so goodness. she spent five months of her six-year-old year in a stall. Um, and we really, the prognosis was pretty unclear at first. I genuinely thought she was going to be put to sleep when I found her that day because I could like see chunks of bone hanging oh out of her gosh. leg. Um, but she did great. She spent two different two separate weeks in New at New Bolton um, because at first they didn't want to lay her down for surgery and then she ended up having to go down for surgery and getting pieces of the bone taken out. So I was just hoping that she might be able to be a riding horse again. At the end of her six-year-old year when I started rehabbing her again, it seemed like the suspensory had somehow been untouched. The, now she had a whole splint bone. It didn't have any pieces, you know, obviously missing on x-ray and her hock joints seemed to be like relatively intact and so essentially the vets cleared her to do whatever she was willing to do so what i'm hearing is sage is wolverine <laughs> She's tough as nails guys <laughs> don't let her sage. tell you anything otherwise <laughs> uh but then so that winter, I rehabbed her for the whole winter and started jumping her again. But when I tried to event her in her seven-year-old year, it was an absolute no. She had no interest in doing the jumping phases of eventing anymore. So it wasn't, it wasn't because of the injury, but after the injury, it just, there was no way she wasn't going to jump anymore. So that is, I was keeping her. So I kept her and did dressage. And you didn't just do dressage. You did some very impressive things. 
Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you can tell how so. much Tori likes to talk about herself. So I'll toot your horn a little bit. You brought her up to um, all the way to pre-St. George, and you got both your bronze and your silver mm-hmm. on an off-track thoroughbred that you made yourself in, in a relatively short like window of time, right? Yes. So we started competing in dressage in 2019, Okay. And we finished our silver in 2022. That's really wonderful. And to me, one of my highlights of uh, being your friend and being Sage's massage therapist was definitely getting to watch you two compete at Devon, dressage at Devon. You actually had two thoroughbreds competing that weekend. <laughs> well, Avi wasn't competing. <laughs> so, the yeah, it was really fun. Avi happened to get, you know, called up to substitute for a horse in the quadrille demonstration. So he got to go on Friday night and perform in a flappers routine with seven <laughs> other horses in the Dixon Oval, which was really cool to watch. And just, I was a proud mom watching someone else ride him. He is the best boy. He's such a good boy. So such special. <laughs> yeah, Devin was really fun because you don't see next to any off-track thoroughbreds competing um, at the FEI at Devin. Or was it, sorry, at the CDI at Devon? Yeah, I did the, Sage did the CDI amateur pre-St. George. So it it is an FEI. It's like a little bit different from doing, you know, an open CDI. Only people who have no FEI ranking can do it. Okay. Um, but otherwise, you know, follows all the FEI rules. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit. You know, one of the things I've always admired the most about you is how incredibly tenacious and detail-oriented you are about your horse's care. And to me, from the outside, it really seems like you're able to keep your horses remarkably sound and comfortable when they might not be able to be otherwise in their physical limitations. Um, And that's, you know... I think like what I see from the outside is you, there are so many moving parts to what you do. Um, but I'd love to talk a little bit about the different challenges you've seen with each of your horses um, and the different ways that you've learned to either manage them or overcome them. I, yeah. Sorry. I think that you probably, it might seem like it's a canned response, but I really think that starting with the feet is so important for any horse coming off the track. I I know some horses come off with feet that are in decent shape, but in my experience, like so much of their soundness and comfort starts with getting them comfortable up front in their front feet when they come off. That makes a lot of sense. I actually just um, talked about Sage and Avi indirectly in a podcast that I did that should come out I think will come out before this one, um, where we talked about the different causes of muscle soreness. And I both mentioned Avi's confirmation and Sage's feet. (laughs) Um, Sage has high-low feet, um, Mm -hmm. and Avi has uh, specific feet as well. So, you know, how do you – so is the main way that you manage that through, like, basically a really good farrier? I would say, yes, that's the ongoing management, but I think – When Sage got to me, it was so clear from her pre-purchase exam that that was going to be what we were up against, that Mm. it has been on my mind from the day I brought her home that I needed to prioritize taking really good care of her front feet. And for that reason, there have absolutely been times where she's feeling foot sore, but I've always been able to address it because... I know to go back to those basics and, you know, have the farrier adjust the angle on her low foot or whatever it may be at that time. 
So is there anything outside of that do you do? Do you use any like liniments or poultices or supplements? So she does get a biotin supplement uh, that a few different farriers have recommended just to help hoof growth. Um, is it farrier's formula? She actually gets biotin Z, which has copper and zinc in it as oh, well. Cool. But other than, you know, that supplement, I would say staying on top of times that the foot isn't going right is really important too. So if she is foot sore, then I'm so diligent about icing the foot and keeping the foot wrapped. Um, you know, she cannot be on bare ground, on, you know, a bare foot on ground for any longer than it is just to shoe her. Um, so <laughs> she is absolutely wrapped any time that a shoe is pulled off or that it has to get pulled off for an abscess or whatever it may be. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm just curious, have you found that anything like, like, pull like PEMF or anything like that has helped her feet at all or anything else like uh I mean because you did you have done some injections in her naviculars or coffin or her, her coffins no. no not her okay not her coffins okay no um she so I do she has had a fair amount of PEMF from Maya I can't say for sure that it you know, helps yeah. or doesn't help with her soundness because she right. wasn't dealing with unsoundness necessarily at the time. Right. But I will say she loves it. So it must feel good to get some kind of, you know, change in the blood flow or whatever she might feel when she's getting PEMF on her feet because she, like, falls asleep instantly. Yeah, I have I have noticed that. That was the only reason I asked. But she's so sweet. So, so you take care. You're very proactive about their feet. Um, what else do you do? Or some other, like, Tory tricks. Hmm. Tricks with Tory. I think that Maya and I talk a lot about how everything that you do with your horse is so personalized to them. Yeah. So it's hard. It's really hard to make generalized recommendations. Like, for example, for Avi, who's older and has kissing spine and is just generally really tight and also is very good out in the field, it's important for us to give him as much turnout as possible and he doesn't wear anything on his legs during that turnout and that plan works for him, but it does not work for Sage. So Sage is really volatile in the field and she doesn't have as much trouble, you know, loosening up through her body. And so if she's having a day where she's losing her mind in the field, she gets brought in because she's going to impale herself on something. <laughs> so all of their management is just so based on who they are. I think it's it's foolish and borders on negligent as a horse person to think that one size fits all when it comes to any kind of horse keeping. I love that. That was an excellent sound bite. So thank you for that. Gotcha. <laughs> so last, last question when it comes to like super specific care, you know what I would say just from my own experience, you know, with Wesley, my horse was an off track thoroughbred as well. Um, just with my experience, I kind of put the three main issues that thoroughbreds face as their feet, ulcers, and kissing spine. Mm -hmm. And then there's absolutely residual body soreness and arthritis thrown in there as well. Um, I, I had my own specific strategies to manage Wesley I'd love to share with you, but I'd love to hear, are there anything from those big th three, we already touched on feet, but are there anything from ulcers or kissing spine that you do to manage them? 
I think that the best management is proactive management. So yes. excellent, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of ulcers, um, I I do try to stay really on top of it. So both of my horses, when they're in any kind of training riding program, um, get a gastrointestinal supplement twice a day, every day. But I also add in ulcer guard during stressful events. So uh, Sage is moving this weekend. And so starting yesterday, she got a full tube of ulcer guard. She got a half tube today and she'll get a half tube through and the day following the move just to help shut down those acid pumps, which I think staying ahead of it rather than knowing, you know, if I move her or I show her or whatever, and she's not on any kind of extra support, I may then be treating an active, you know, ulcer problem. Right. Which is not only painful to her, it's also incredibly expensive and very hard to, like, I I honestly view ulcers as like, yes, they are absolutely a gut issue, but their effects are so wide. Like, I think that ulcers are such a like cause of anxiety to horses and physical like bodily pain like I was just talking recently about how I noticed so many horses with a history of ulcers have a lot of tension through their back because their abdominals hurt so much it hurts to contract their abdominals and engage their core and protect their back and I think it ends up being such a vicious cycle when a horse has ulcer pain then it leads to more pain and because they're in pain they're stressed and their ulcers get worse so it it really does not only is it painful for them, but dealing with them on the backside is so much harder than dealing with them ahead of time the best that you can. Yeah, and I think that there are so many good supplements out there, honestly. Like, I'm not a supplement, like, throw a supplement at everything by any means. Um, I just personally, in my, like, experience with both my with Wesley having horrible ulcers and like hindgut ulcers as well as so many clients just giving me anecdotal you know results it does seem like a good supplement can make the world of difference Wes but I think that it does require a little bit of experimentation to get there experimentation I do believe that it requires a little bit of experimentation to get there you know for example like I tried all of the bougie expensive ones on Wesley, but the one that actually made the difference was like Smart Gut, mm. you know, which isn't even that expensive. But like I tried a bunch of the other ones, you know, I tried aloe vera, I tried marshmallow root, I tried the more expensive ones. And it just seemed like for whatever reason, that was the one that did it for him. I just have like a funny story that goes yeah, with this. Okay. There was a brief period of time when I was writing Cali that I decided I want, wanted to kind of go like an all natural approach to ulcers. <laughs> and so yeah. I was feeding her pumpkin seed and dried cabbage. Doesn't pumpkin, isn't pumpkin a laxative? Well, it may be because it made her so gassy that genuinely she seemed uncomfortable by the (laughs) amount that she was passing gas while I was riding her. Like, I couldn't ride a jump course without her just passing gas. (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) I've I've heard that about, like, alfalfa. Like, a lot of people feed horses alfalfa to cushion the stomach. Um, But alfalfa can also have um, some, like, gaseous effects, basically, in the horse's gut, which I'd love to have an equine nutritionist on. On here a few times to really dig into some of that stuff because it's so interesting but so okay so ulcers and then kissing spine do any of your horses have kissing spine yes avi has i i think it's classified as moderate kissing spine okay surprisingly sage may be one of the only off-track thoroughbreds that does not have kissing spine but in terms of avi's management um a few of the things and i think these work for a lot of horses that just tend to be tight 
Um, yeah. I think they, horses don't have to have kissing spine to have a lot of back issues. And horses with kissing spine don't necessarily have a huge amount of back issues. Right. Which and is I, the se- the latter is much rarer, just to be clear. But <laughs> but it does happen that, does happen. Um, you know, a horse who x-rays with kissing spine, that may be true and unrelated to what is actually at the root of their problems. Yeah. Um, so for Avi, I think one of the things I tried to do is keep him pretty warm during the winter. Obviously, that is kind of individual to the horse because not all horses will tolerate being bundled up or having um, any kind of ceramic therapy added in for some horses that is like too warm. Um, I personally do like ceramic therapy. I don't think that it is a cure-all, but I do try to uh, make you know, any saddle pad that's on my horse, I don't think it's going to hurt for it to be to have ceramic fiber. So I do try to use ceramic on their backs as much as I can. Um, and other than that, I've done mesotherapy on his back that helps with the muscle soreness. Obviously that's not actually getting down into the vertebrae at all. Definitely. And you do a lot of correct dressage riding on him. Do you feel like that helps get him stronger or is there any like other corrective exercises or therapies? Like, I mean, I work on him, Mm -hmm. but not as regularly as I used to. I will say, to put that in context, he doesn't actually compete anymore. So when he was competing at third level, which was pretty physically taxing on him, he was getting done by Maya regularly. And now he's mostly a glorified pasture and ornament. So he's doing well. Um, He's living his best Avi life. (laughs) He's a very happy boy. I think that doing carriage stretches is really helpful for horses who have back issues. I also think... I spend, even with Sage, a lot more time in a long and low frame than most people would say is appropriate, probably. Um, I warm both of them up almost at the buckle and just let them warm up. I'm not worried about, you know, where their head is. I want them to start loosening up through their back before I ask for anything more from them. And for him, I think that's huge for him to be able to swing before I start to, you know, do any kind of shortening with him. Um, The other thing that I did when I was riding him a lot more is I would try to do a once a week Pessoa lunging session. Uh, I know that some people use the belly bands and I did read some research and I would love to have we actually just dug into this pretty aggressively with Melissa it's a super interesting conversation yeah no no but it's cool it's it's equibands and pessoas both have different like pros and cons I think that from my memory the pessoa tends to lengthen their stride more where the belly band tends to lift their back more but I think that neither of those without the other really helps, right? Like if you're just getting them to take longer steps but not lift their back or if they're just lifting their back but they're not pushing through at all, then you're not really accomplishing what you're trying to get there. So for him, the Pessoa was a great way for him to have a day that there was no weight on his back, well, a negligible amount of weight on his back, but he was still stretching across it, you know, working his top line, working his abs some, but didn't have me on him to, you know, impede his movement in in any way. 
Yeah. I love that you do a lot of long and low stretchy work to open them up. I totally agree with you. That was something I did a lot with Wesley. And honestly, what I've also noticed that you do that you haven't mentioned yet, and it's something that I did with Wesley long before I ever met you, was just a huge amount of like walk work, like Mm -hmm. either just hack rides or just like taking a very long time to warm them up. Like I actually will say like, I think Wesley was always happiest when he literally had 30 minutes to walk before and like not walk doing something like just walk, just walk on the buckle, which I think is hard for people to do, but it made the world of difference to him. And I agree with you. I think he had back pain. I think he was basically able to stretch forward and down and kind of unlock the way Avi does. Um, And it just made, especially because he was older, it just made a world of difference for him. I think there are two pieces of that, and I think that they both help thoroughbreds. The first is what you're saying, which is that doing a lot of work in the walk before you get to anything else is so good for warming them up. And too many people get on and too many people, sorry, um, <laughs> crank their heads down and want to get right into you know the front of the work. I also think that from a mental standpoint, and this may have, you know, a bigger impact on thoroughbreds than other breeds, but I think it's true for all horses, is that a lot of people go into the mentality of doing dressage as I need to be, you know, in the ring schooling the movements and that's how I'm going to improve my performance. And that is true to an extent, but what I found is that there was a point of diminishing returns that I couldn't ride my horses in the dressage arena school, like, you know, drilling moves six days a week and expect them to come out better every day. And that just wasn't happening for them because not only were they physically getting sore throughout the week, if I was ramping up their training every day, they also were getting mentally fatigued from being in the arena doing the same thing every day. And I think coming from an eventing background, which Maya and I both do, you have a lot more of a cross-training mentality coming into it. And I know that for a lot of amateurs, maybe riding outside the arena seems daunting, but that doesn't mean you can't switch up what you're doing from day to day so that Mm -hmm. the horse doesn't get set in this routine and kind of start to sour to the idea. So I do a lot of, I'm not afraid to admit it, I do a lot of bareback hacking on my horses. Like at least one or two days a week, they don't get asked to do anything but walk on the buckle. And I think they're happier for it. I have so much to say about that. So first of all, I agree with you. I think that it has so many mental benefits. What I noticed with Wesley is um, he was so anxious, which I think is very common in thoroughbreds. And I think that part of that is that the mentality at the track is basically, uh, you know, the horses get tack thrown at them. They go out and gallop. It may or may not be very painful for them. And then they come back and sit in their stall. And that's kind of like their life. I mean, ideally, like in, there are some tracks that treat them a lot better than that. Um, but I think that Wesley, every time I got on him, he kind of expected to be in pain or to be to be expected to force into something because even his life after the track for a while, I think, was pretty unhappy. Um, and then but I think giving him like half an hour to literally just like wander around and like or like I pick him up and do some stuff with him, but kind of just like it just reminded him every time that like you're here to like have a nice time <laughs> and like exist. Um, and that just like, 
he always had initial anxiety at the start of a ride and I would just feel it dissipate the longer I walked him before I expected him to work. And anytime he had a lot of anxiety, um, as long as he wasn't being blatantly like very naughty, um, anytime he had anxiety, I found it really powerful to just come back to the walk and walk him around on a buckle and let him just like decompress for five minutes and then pick up whatever I wanted to do. I've seen you do that with Sage as well. <laughs> yeah, so there definitely have been trainers who think I'm that I am too far on the side of leniency with my horses, but yes. I would prefer it that way than to think that I have too much of like a drill sergeant mentality. So I do tend to give my horses the benefit of the doubt that if there is something behavioral going on, that it's coming from a place of overwhelm and not from a place of not wanting to do it. Because I think for most horses, like if they have a decent life, they want to do what you're asking them to do. No, they probably wouldn't choose dressage, but they are (laughs) willing to work with you for the most part, unless there's something that's causing them anguish mentally or physically. And so I do try to approach it. And yes, I, I definitely find my horses find comfort in walking and also they always can go back to that comfortable long and low place. I totally agree. And feel like, yeah, like they can let out a deep breath at that point. Well, there's also science to the fact that when horses um, like telescope out their head and neck and they lower their head and neck and do that stretchy work, it literally simulates um, like relaxation chemicals for them, like dopamine. And I think um, uh, dopamine and I want to say, Norepinephrine, that's the knot. I I think it releases I think it releases dopamine. I but I know it releases some of the good chemicals, essentially at the chemical level, allowing them to drop their head and neck and relax. It's not only good for their body, but it is like physically relaxing them as well. Do I maybe you don't know from like what you did read of the research. Is it because it's do they think it's because it's the same motion as like grazing or where do they think that that comes from? That's my guess. My guess is also honestly that it's easier for them to breathe. Yeah. Uh, they're a little bit better oxygenated, a little bit better oxygenated. They are able to relax over their top line and relax all of those big muscle groups. So maybe it tells the body a little bit, just like it's a stretch, like yeah. the way you and I relax. Um, but I'd be really interested. I'll have to dig into that study and have you back. I think that that makes sense, too, based on you and I both know two horses, one recently that was diagnosed with, like, a breathing problem that makes dressage really stressful for him because being in a frame puts his epiglottis, I think, in a position that it feels to him like he's suffocating. And Callie actually had a really similar issue. She had asthma and so or lower airway disease for horses. And... I guess it's not quite the same, but a similar disease called lower airway disease. And when she went into a frame, she felt panicked because she felt like her lungs were filling with fluid. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. And, you know, now that you're saying that um, something's clicking for me with Wesley. I mean, he did like he always had like a little bit of a breathing issue, Mm -hmm. like um, a vet, a friend of a 
a friend of mine who was a vet would occasionally watch me ride him. And he was like, I think he might be like a half roarer. Mm. Like he was like, he's not the full thing, but the way he breathes is like not quite right. And I almost wonder maybe part of Wesley's anxiety with, because he was so happy to do like second level. And it just always seemed like the, like the upper level work was so anxiety producing for him. And I always felt like maybe it was just too much to do. Because what I found was that he could do all of the things. Like, he could school almost all of the pre-St. George very, very well. Or maybe all of the pre-St. George very, very well. But it was almost impossible to, like, put it together. And I'm almost wondering maybe part of that was a breathing issue for him. That's really interesting. Definitely. I mean, it's definitely something I don't hear dressage people talk about. Yeah, I don't hear people talk about that either. Breathing is so important. And so having a bad breathing horse is like, this could be career ending. Whereas I don't ever hear people in dressage. Like this horse this year is the first time I've heard a dressage horse whose career is being severely impacted with a breathing problem. Well, and I don't know if you know this, but the FEI does have a rule that states that you're not allowed to have a horse in the warm-up for FEI events. You're not technically allowed to have a horse in warm-up in a um, like high frame, like held in a high frame for more than 10 minutes at a time because it's stressful for them, which you and I both know is not uh, that I highly doubt that that rule is enforced. I have never seen that rule be enforced. So <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and put that on the record. <laughs> um, but, you know, I remember um, a very well-known trainer um, telling a group of young riders that, and I found that super interesting because he was like, no matter what you're doing in your training ride, within 10 minutes you have to give your horse a break yeah. or you have to let your horse stretch. And I did that with Wesley, and I had a lot of good results with that. That's super interesting. But also what I wanted to mention, just listening to you talk about the way you like manage and advocate for your horses, um, kind of like the the overarching theme, I think, in some ways is almost that I think that off-track thoroughbreds in some ways make better horse men and horse women um, because I think that they have, for all of their flaws – Um, you know, their physical, the physical baggage and emotional baggage that they come off with on the track. First of all, they're incredibly kind, hardworking horses. So it makes you want to be a partner with them. But also I think that those flaws force you to be a better, more conscious horse person. You know, I, what I have personally found is that the great thing about warm bloods, um, is that they will, they're much more stoic and they will work incredibly hard. Um, but I almost wonder if, if thoroughbreds are such a good learning experience because you have to a learn to be incredibly cognizant and like almost a more honest horse person with when it comes to managing their anxiety advocating for them and cross training and doing things in a way that is going to work for naturally more anxious horses um then also learning to manage to ride in a way that is more fair to them physically Yeah, I think, and I mean, like, no, I'm not trying to put anyone down because I think that we're generalizing a lot and absolutely, like, everybody works really hard to get the results they get and to take good care of their horses. But I totally agree with you that in my experience, you can't get away with a lot. And and I don't mean that in a way that I was trying to, but you... I can't get away with ignoring something that's cropping up because it's going to spiral out of control with my horses, right? I mean, right. Sage isn't going to say, okay, you know, like, 
that crowd cheering is stressing me out and that horse just you know came a little too close to me and warm up and I don't like the look of that mounting block but I'll put my head down and work like that's not going to happen so I have to figure out how to get ahead of the stress and bring her back into a mental space where she's ready to work and I think that that carries over into all kinds of horse care and keeping for thoroughbreds. Can I tell you a secret? Okay. This may or may not make it onto the final cut of the podcast. Okay. All right, I'm ready. <laughs> and I mean this with all the love in the world. I, I, my, what was about to come out of my mouth is not nearly as bad as either of you think, just to be clear. <laughs> my mom always told me that your first car should be an old one. That is prone to issues because it makes you, like, it gives you just really good overall understanding of, like, cars and, like, things you need to do to properly maintain a car. I, I want to respond to that because, first of all, it's not a secret. That's not, like, a secret at all. I think that that's, I think that that's like, pretty fair to, to say that, like, yeah, like, I, there's, yeah. there are pros and cons to having the kind of horse that will just do its job yes. no matter what. Yes. There are absolutely pros to that, especially for, for instance, a really nervous rider yes. probably isn't well suited for a super sensitive horse. And I don't I genuinely don't think like ninety-nine percent of thoroughbreds are a suitable first horse. I sure. think that they're a really good second horse. For a lot of people. And I yeah. think and again, it does depend on the people. And it depends a lot on the thoroughbred. You know, my I say that. My first horse was a thoroughbred, but she was like a monkey could take her around an office. Like, she was the best yeah. girl. She was so good. Th Wesley was my second horse, and I struggled, and he made me want to give up on a lot of things sometimes. But I would not be sitting here right now with you if it wasn't for him because he made me explore so many options and become the horse person that I am. Yeah. Your... Your car analogy made me think of this, um, this can't make the cut, so I don't know why I'm trying to say it right. So when I was working for a really well-known rider. Oh, my God. Yes, I know the well-known rider. Um, I was riding Avi, and like I said, Avi did not have a ample scope. And so after a cross-country schooling that had gone pretty well, where it was kind of clear that I as a rider might be outgrowing Avi as a horse, the rider took me aside and said, you know, horses are kind of like refrigerators. Sometimes the old one's no good anymore and you should put it out on the side of Route 41 and get a new one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. the things people say. Yeah, but, you know, like, I think that having a horse, you know, for example, like, you and I both probably have a lot more veterinary education. Hmm. We have a lot more knowledge of veterinary care um, and a lot more knowledge of, you know, you know, let's switch topics. You did say something earlier about um, you've had trainers, you know, tell you um, that you are a little bit too lenient with your horses. I have had trainers tell me the same thing. Something interesting I've noticed is that mo and I'm actually not saying that these trainers are wrong by any means. Something I have noticed is that all of those trainers who said that do not have a lot of experience with thoroughbreds. And I think that it's, I am learning that it takes 
I personally only want to work, if I'm riding a thoroughbred, I only want to work with someone consistently who actually understands thoroughbreds. And that is such a skill set in and with of itself. You know, I just rode with person after person. I mean, just something as small as like, I'd had Wesley for like five or six years. And I had the conversation with every new trainer I worked with, which I didn't train or jump a lot, but even clinicians I rode with. Every single time I had a like conversation with them about like, well, why don't you ride him with a whip when you ride him with spurs? And I would say he's whip shy. And they, and they would say he should get over it. And I would say he's not going to get over it. And then we would go through a month of him not getting over it before they gave up. And I was like, he's not going to get over it. Why don't you just trust me on that? But it was also things like he would be about to explode and I would give him a stretchy break and they'd say you needed to push him there. And I said, no, I didn't. It was going to make it was going to set us back months. And again, they didn't believe me. And I, looking back now, I am glad I advocated for him. I wish I honestly even advocated for him more, but I think that people who don't understand thoroughbreds just have no idea what that ride is like. And I think it gets even more challenging as you move up the levels of any one sport, because the number of people who have ridden at the upper levels and done it on a thoroughbred is smaller and smaller yes Um, so i have i've had similar experiences honestly with sage i find that people are really willing to help me and give me like you know feedback and criticisms when she's going well because she goes like a dressage horse and then when she has you know those meltdown moments where maybe i push her too far i didn't like pick up on the cue that there was an explosion about to happen and now we're in the explosion i really haven't yet worked with a trainer who's had an upper level horse who can also flip a switch that quickly and explode and it is a little bit you know like i'm just grappling with it on my own i haven't quite found someone who has that skill set i guess yeah no it's, it's super interesting it's um well, I, I think one of the big things I've learned in the last few months is that we are all a lot less rounded than we think we are. You know, I think that we're all a sum of our experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think that if you've taken one horse up the levels, as amazing as that is, you've taken one horse up the levels. Right. You know, I don't, I took Wesley up to fourth level, but I don't pretend to know that much about taking, for example, a young warm blood up the levels. I know that that, you know, my next horse probably will be a young warm blood. I have I'm fully expecting to be in a like full to partial training situation there, at least for the earlier years of their life, because I know so little about that. But I also wish that professional trainers would maybe admit that a little bit more. You know, I see so many trainers who have a good knowledge of like a couple of breeds, and then they think that every breed should translate like that. And I just think it's a bit unfair. Yeah, I would agree with you. It made me think of I've genuinely heard, and actually, in it wasn't the warm up for my test at Dressage at Devon, mm-hmm. but you were there when I was schooling the night before my test. Yeah. And Sage was having a really hard time. Um, there was like a demo, uh, what did they call it? The master class was yes. going on yes. in the Dixon Oval next door. So there's a lot of noise, lights, lots of people and horses. And then the schooling ring was also really crowded. And so I was, you know, barely getting to the pre-St. George moves because I was spending so much time stretching her, you know, bending her, just trying to get her to take a breath. And I genuinely heard a trainer saying to their students several times, kick and pull, kick and pull. Oh and this God. is at an FBI show. And I, I just couldn't help but like chuckle to myself. Fortunately, like I've been working with horses and 
working with horses with difficulties and also just have gotten to a point where like I can take the competitions a little more lightly and so I can like laugh about it in the moment and say like wow this is quite a contrast where I'm like you're okay you're okay, you can do it, you can trot past the edge of the ring, and somebody else is getting told to kick and pull, like kick and pull their horse together, and just the, you know, like the humor in the idea that I would ever just try, just fix it by kicking and pulling. <laughs> if only Sage was that easy. Just kick and pull. For those, um, most of you don't know this, or I don't think any of you know this, but just to illustrate um, the fact that Sage is not the easiest horse in the world, um, I cannot canter her. I'm, I don't pretend to be a spe- an especially talented rider, but I, I have I have ridden fourth level for a fair amount of time on a uh, red thoroughbred, and so you know naturally I did assume that that skill set would translate to at least being able to walk trot canter twice another horse. red thoroughbred another yeah, you red would thoroughbred think it was transferable. I, I didn't think i was going to be able to do like a fourth level test on her or a pre-saint george test on her i just i did think i would get to walk trot canter your horse and it we have been proven time and time again that that is not the case <laughs> maya does try to use that as a like to kind of boost me up and say like the horse is really difficult but who trained the horse? <laughs> Me. So I actually installed that feature. <laughs> well, other people can canter the horse. <laughs> Not a lot of people. Not though. a lot of people. I, I will say, yeah. other people can canter her if they don't touch the reins. She loves a canter on the buckle. But she really, there are a few people who can, like, pick her up into a frame. <laughs> I, she, we've had eight and a half years together. She, we're just very familiar with each other. What yeah. Is, what does she do? Stops. She just stops? No, she she just trots. She just ignores oh, me. Oh, yeah, that's right. She just I don't. Canter. She just, it does not register. Whatever I do to her, I can be pony club <laughs> kicking her, tapping her with the whip, smooching at her, putting the reins next to her head. She she trots along. <laughs> does not care. Doesn't have, not a and single, like, doesn't even. And it's not, and it's not, yeah, I said, do you know what, Sage? When... <laughs> When Maya comes. <laughs> <laughs> You're just not going to. I think go. we maybe got like a half a circle of canter out of her. It's maybe. It's so, I mean, I it's just, not funny. And I, I don't, <laughs> I really hope you don't like take it as any kind oh, no. of like no, direct no. like criticism of your riding because it, it truly, I do think, is just that she and I have spent so much time like just with each other like she's been my sole riding horse for a lot of the last eight years and I have been her sole rider for eight years um except for the time she broke my foot and my younger sister rode her for a bit but yeah you know I think of riding horses a little bit like um speaking a language Mm -hmm. and you know every time you get on a new horse you have to kind of learn whatever language they've been taught and they have to do their best to interpret the language that you've been taught so you have basically just spoken your own language to sage for eight years um and i think but i think that it's so cool that you have done that with her because clearly it worked because i don't think anyone else could have gotten her to pre-saint george we'll never know (laughs) (laughs) i like to say a lot and this is might be off topic, but I like to like question whether the way Sage turned out was nature or nurture hmm. because she does do, she still has a big flair for the dramatic. Like she yeah. can be, you know, schooling the whole pre St. George and then 
I touch her the wrong way with my spur and she will like really lay into me. Um, she'll let me know that I did something wrong. And I kind of wonder if I had maybe fallen off of her a few more times when she was younger, maybe it would seem like a bigger deal to act out like that because yeah. we will just then carry on. So either, you know, somebody who may have fallen off of her or I guess, you know, really like disciplined her, her yeah. maybe it would have gone the other direction. Like maybe, you know, she never would have made it anywhere and would have just fallen apart completely. Or I kind of wonder if maybe she would have been like, oh, I can't actually do that. <laughs> I, we'll never know. We'll <laughs> never know. Um, so do you have any parting advice as we get to the, like, towards the end of this episode? What kind of overarching themes or advice would you have for people who either have a thoroughbred or looking to um, purchase a thoroughbred? I think it's – we've – come back to this theme over and over and I don't think that it's super helpful but I think every single horse whether they're a thoroughbred or not is an yeah. individual yeah. so nothing that I tell you is going to be the cure-all for your horse because I don't know your horse and <laughs> I've spent so long getting to know my horse and I'm still tweaking all the time um, her management or her riding routine or whatever it may be um, but Getting to know your horse is the best way to address whatever may come up because you don't know if something's off if you don't know their baseline really, really well. I really agree. I talk about that a lot. Um, you know, just the importance of literally just running your hands over your horses every day and just getting to know them. Um, and the more you can go out and educate yourself about their care, that just empowers you to be able to make the best decisions for them. Absolutely. So, Tori, I have one last question for you, and then I'm going to set you free. <laughs> what is one thing when it comes to riding thoroughbred horses that you do not buck with? Mm. I think I don't buck with riding the horse based on the x-rays mm. instead of I the like horse. that. A lot of people will say it, but I think that there's still this tendency to get really scared off by a pre-purchase exam that isn't stellar. And the reality is that by the time they're three years old, thoroughbreds have done more physically than most other horses will do in their lifetime. And so that's powerful. That's a sound bite. Thank you. <laughs> if they're sound at that point, you absolutely can be informed by what's on the x-ray. But if everything about that horse, when you ride it and when you run your hands over it, is saying this is a good horse and this is the right horse for me, then I think more people need to be willing to buy a horse whose x-ray shows some imperfection. Even horses that make it to the Olympics don't have clean x-rays. There's always going to be something. And Maya and I were talking before we started about I can honestly – only think of one situation where I know that the horse's career ended because of the thing that was wrong in the pre-purchase exam. Things go wrong with horses all the time, and I think that pre-purchase exams need to be thought of more as information gathering than as being deal-breaking um, devices. I totally agree. I mean, to like back up, back up what you're saying. I mean, I did a full pre-purchase on Wesley when I purchased him. I think it was around two thousand um, dollars at and at that time, which was go eight, 
eight-ish years ago, that was a very expensive pre-purchase. And, you know, almost, I mean, he had so much x-rayed in his body and and he passed it with flying colors. Like he passed it almost perfectly. He went on to have so many physical issues very quickly. And I think that part of that was because he had so many muscular issues. Mm -hmm. He also had emotional issues and he had gut issues and none of those show up on a pre-purchase. Um, but those are all things that you have to learn to face on any horse because they can come up regardless. Right. I think that most people's pre-purchase exams do only look at the skeleton. I know that some people will really go overboard and do soft tissue as well. But mm -hmm. even then, like you said, you're not getting the whole picture of the horse. You can't get the whole picture of the horse. Yeah. And I think, you know, that brings me to maybe my last point, which is if you are um, starting a journey with a thoroughbred, um, especially if you're not a super experienced horse person, it's really invaluable to work with a trainer who is experienced with thoroughbreds and horses in general, because that trainer can not only look at a horse and give you a good idea from their many years of experience, um, if they have a good gut feeling about that horse, you know, um, but also that person can help to guide you in managing those issues because they are so personalized. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Tori, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank You're you the for best. having me. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye.